Thank you all for that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 5. We will finish Mark chapter 5 this morning, looking at the story, the encounter of Jesus. There's several different encounters in this text. As you're turning there, if you've got your notes in front of you, then you see that our main idea this morning, the main idea of what I want us to see in this text and walk away from is this truth, that Jesus' authority and his kingship are demonstrated in healing the sick and raising the dead. And Mark has included this story in his gospel to help illustrate the point that Jesus' authority extends even to sickness and over death. And the reason that that is important, you see there, is that so that we come to trust him in salvation. That it's good to recognize Jesus has all authority. It's good to see that Jesus has authority even over death. But it's not enough to stop there. If we only know that about Jesus, then we only know Jesus partially. If we only know facts and and truths about Jesus as that person over there, wherever that is, away from us, then we don't really know Jesus. Because the reason why Mark is introducing us to these truths, the reason why Mark is, is letting us walk along and encounter these things along with Jesus, is so that we come to know him personally. So that we come to know him as our own savior. So that we see he does have this authority. He does have this power. I can trust him. Even with my own death. So if you've got your Bibles open this morning, I'll invite you to stand if you are able. We stand to honor the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she will be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion 
people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. Thank you that it is in, it is in the Bible. Thank you that it is meant for us to see and savor your glorious truth that you are our Savior. Help us now, Holy Spirit, as we consider this text together. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus' help, Jesus' help will cost you more than you ever anticipated. Jesus' help will cost you more than you ever anticipated. But Jesus' help will grant you far more than you ever imagined. Coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus for help is often far different than we anticipate. And yet, receiving Jesus' help is far and away more than we have ever imagined. And I hope to show you that throughout the story. Well, as I said a few sermons ago, death is kind of the, the theme of these few stories. The threat of death kind of hangs over these stories. We saw the disciples on the sea. We saw the man possessed of demons. And now we're seeing a little girl who's on the threat of death and a woman who is suffering from this life-taking disease. Mark is using these two stories to illustrate one point. If you recall, uh, back in chapter 3, I talked about Mark uses this, this sandwich technique. He starts with one story, inserts another one, and then he comes back to the original one. And that's what's going on here. We start meeting by meeting Jairus, and then all of a sudden the story is interrupted by this woman, and then we are back to Jairus' story. And Mark recounts this story purposefully. It's told on purpose, and it, it, it very much perhaps happened like this. It happened in this order. Now, in chapter 3, when he did it, it was a different order. It happened at different times, but he's, he put them together to make a point. Here, it happens this way, and it happens this way on purpose. We see Jairus come to Jesus and make his request. We see Jesus agree and begin to move towards Jairus' house and his daughter, where he's interrupted by the woman and then ultimately goes on to her house. And all of these things happen on purpose. And so let's consider them in turn together. We see in verses 21 through 24, Jairus come to make his request. Jesus has been on the other side of the sea. He's just left the area where the demon-possessed man had been cast out and the townspeople had come. And they said, look, your power's too great. Please leave. 
So they've gotten in the boat and they've crossed the sea once again. And Mark doesn't tell us if as soon as Jesus' foot hit the shore, the crowd amassed, or if there was some time that passed. We don't know exactly how long he was on the shore. All that Mark is, is concerned with is that a great crowd has once again gathered around Jesus. When Jesus was last on the shore in chapter 4, there was a great crowd. He'd been teaching them. Now, once again, there's this great crowd amassing around him. And if you will recall, I've made the the comment a few times, Mark uses characters in the gospel story to highlight right and wrong responses to Jesus. He uses the Pharisees, he uses the crowds, and here he's using the crowds. On the other side of the seashore, we saw an inappropriate response to Jesus from the crowds who says, "Uh, you're too powerful, go away. But on the Galilean side of the seashore, we see the crowds only interested in Jesus for what he can do for them. Jesus, you're powerful. Jesus, you can do things. I'm not really interested in what you're teaching. I don't really want to follow you, but I want you to help me. Mark is saying both of these are wrong responses to Jesus. But in the midst of all this, and in the midst of this crowd amassing and pushing and shoving and trying to get to Jesus, one man gets to where Jesus is. If you've ever been in an unruly crowd, it can be a, an uncomfortable thing, it can be a concerning thing, but, but one man had it on his mind, had it on his heart, that he had to get to Jesus. And it was this man, Jairus. And if, and if you are a father this morning, if you, if you are here and you are a father, this story should, should cut you to the heart. If you put yourself in Jairus' position, not that if you're a mother you would feel different, but it happens to be the father in the story. But he is burdened by the life of his child. And he knows that in the middle of that crowd, there stands a man who can perhaps change the threat to my, life, to my daughter's life. And so he fights his way to the middle. He fights his way to Jesus. And it says he, fa- he falls at his feet. He pays him homage. He, he shows him reverence. He falls down on his knees or perhaps prostrates himself on... Uh, on, on the ground, but he's, he's saying to Jesus, you can do something that I need. Well, Mark records that he's a ruler of the synagogue. The synagogue was uh, a Jewish place of worship, a Jewish house of worship. Now, he's not a Pharisee. He's not a, he's not a teacher in the synagogue, but he's a ruler, which that, that title indicates that he's a person of prominence. He's a leader He's a decision maker. He's well-known. And so this well-known synagogue leader comes to Jesus who, remember, Jesus is at odds with the Pharisees. He's at odds with the teachers. And yet here comes one associated with the Pharisees to Jesus, begging his help. And so the language that Mark uses earnestly saying, implored him, my daughter's at the point of death. This this language that Mark is using is indicating that this is an emotional, desperate plea. If Jesus, if you don't come, she's going to die. Jesus, you, you need to understand we're at the last point before death. There's nothing else to be done. Please, please, please come. I mean, put yourself in that moment. If you're a parent, put yourself in that moment. What are you unwilling to do to save the life of your child? Nothing. You're willing to look a fool if you need to. 
You're, you're going to be desperate and crying out. Now, Mark doesn't record the actual emotions that Jairus might be facing, but if it were me, I can imagine sobbing and screaming and acting in a way that I wouldn't normally act because I'm desperate to save my child. Well, Jesus departs with him at once. Doesn't tell us that there was an interchange. It doesn't tell us that Jesus evaluated, well, well, how long has she been sick? What are her symptoms? It just says that he departs. He went with him. Well, it also tells us that the crowd went, which is not surprising. Wherever the miracle worker goes, I need to be with the miracle worker because I have a better chance of receiving a miracle. But additionally, additionally, we've heard the request And so we want to see Jesus might be getting ready to do another miracle. He might be getting ready to perform something, and I want to see that. It's incredible what a crowd wants to see. Whether it's you're out in public and a crowd starts to amass, just the amassing of a crowd gets your attention. When traffic comes to a halt on the highway, nine times out of nine, nothing's going on. Somebody slowed down, and we all needed to stop to see what was going on. But the crowd was interested. What's going on? Where's Jesus going? What's about to happen? So it says, the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. That means they were moving. They were pushing. They were were jostling with each other. There were so many of them. They wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted to to be aware of what was going to happen. And so after the exchange between Jesus and Jairus, they set out on a course to his house. The crowd is following, and it says in verse 25, and there was a woman, a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the the reading of the text indicates a, 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 a menstrual issue. And what makes this so important. Why, why did Mark include that particular detail in the story? He included that because it highlights the issue of uncleanness in Jewish society. If you look back, and don't, don't flip there now, you can later at some point if you'd like, but in Leviticus 15, there were laws for women when they were going through this, and it was a period of uncleanness for them. And if you were unclean under the law, you were not allowed to get around others who were clean because then you would infect them. You would, you would take away from their cleanliness. And the issue of cleanness was rested on whether you could approach God or not. Whether you could go to the tabernacle or to the temple and be made right with God. If you approached God in an unclean manner you were not going to receive from God what you sought. And so the Old Testament records numerous ways in which people became unclean. And Leviticus 15 tells us that a menstrual cycle made a woman unclean under the law. And so there was a period of waiting before she could be made clean. And this poor woman had suffered under this, not for a small period of time, but for 12 years. For 12 years, she was legally unclean. For 12 years, she was unable to approach the temple of God. For 12 years, she was cut off from society. 
For 12 years, she was kept from living a life of fulfillment as a part of the community. For 12 years, for 12 years, she suffered in silence. She suffered alone. You see, under the law, she would have been akin to a leper. If you remember the leper that, Mark, or that Jesus encounters in Mark chapter three, lepers were put outside of the city because they were contagious. They were perpetually unclean. And the leper couldn't, couldn't live among the people. And if people got too close to the leper, if you recall, he had to cry out, leper, don't come near me. I'm, I'm, I'm not fit to be around you. It was a terrible existence. She was akin to a leper, but in this instance, people would not be able to see her disease in the same way as the leper, and so she was able to slide in among the crowd. She knew she shouldn't have been there under the law. She knew that she could be affecting the other people with her uncleanness, but she thought in her mind, well, their attention's all on Jesus. They're not going to be paying attention to me. No one's going to notice. I can slide in. I can slide right back out. So just as you felt hope, just as you feel the pain, the angst, the anxiety of Jairus as he's awaiting Jesus to come to his house, that feeling of pain, of fear that, that his daughter's about to die, feel the anxiety of this woman. She hasn't been able to worship. She hasn't been able to be made right. She hasn't been able to participate in the wholesomeness of the community of God because she is suffering. Feel that. as She is cut off. And here comes a man that she's heard about. Perhaps he can heal her. He can't approach her, she can't approach him outright because she's unclean. He's a, he's a Jewish rabbi, he's a teacher, he is clean. She can't affect him. I can't come right up to him. And so Mark records that she comes into the crowd, she slides her way up through the back, and she touches his garment. But before we talk about Jesus' response, notice what Mark says about her. That she had suffered much. She had suffered much, but not just suffered much, she had suffered because of doctors. That she had, she had sought healing. That the doctors had attempted to heal her, but in their attempts to heal her, they only made her worse. But notice what else Mark says. All of this going to the doctor, all of this failed, all these failed attempts, she's now broke. She's wasted all her money. She has nothing left, and she's desperate. And so she is willing to risk breaking the law to get to Jesus. She's willing to risk everything if she can get to Jesus in the crowd. Well, throughout Mark's gospel, contact with impurity, contact with uncleanness does not render Jesus unclean. In Jewish society, if you came into contact with something unclean, you were thus unclean. If you came into contact with a dead body, you were unclean. Anything unclean that got on you or got near you thus made you unclean. But Mark highlights all throughout the gospel story that when Jesus comes into contact with something impure or unclean, it doesn't affect him. 
On the contrary, when Jesus comes into contact with impurity, Jesus purges that impurity. Let me give you some examples, you'll remember. When the leper comes to Jesus, Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches him. And instead of the leprosy infecting Jesus, Jesus commands the leprosy to be gone and causes the man to regrow his skin and any of the body parts that the leprosy had eaten away. He ventures into the tomb areas and drives out a legion of demons where there was death and death makes one unclean. Jesus goes into that area purposefully and drives out the demons. Here he is touched by one with the hemorrhage and instead of being made unclean, he drives out the impurity. And in just a few moments, what we will see is that Jesus comes into contact with a dead body and he is not made unclean. In fact, he changes the dead body. Mark is demonstrating that Jesus not only confronts sin and its effects in the world, but Jesus overcomes sin and its effects in the world. As I said, the woman knows she's unclean, that she should not be around others. She shouldn't approach a rabbi, much less touch him. And the hiddenness of her issue allows her to slide in the back of the crowd and get close to Jesus. She can be in and out. No one will know. So she thinks. She touches Jesus and it says immediately she's healed. And Jesus, in verse 30, perceiving power had gone out of him, immediately turned around about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? Now, again, put yourself in the situation. There's a huge crowd of people. Guess who's probably touching Jesus? Everybody. Everybody's touching Jesus. There's movement. There's thronging, Mark says. And then out of nowhere, Jesus stops and turns around and says, who touched me? We see the disciples were with Jesus. They had heard Jairus' plea. They felt in their hearts the pressure of getting to Jairus' house on time. If we don't get there on time, his daughter might not make it. And here Jesus is stopping. And he's asking this question. There's a, there's a thousand people around you and you want to know who touched you? You should be angry reading that verse because they're being kind of smart with Jesus. They're being sarcastic with Jesus. What do you mean you want to know who touched you? Everybody, everybody touched you, Jesus. And if you're reading closely, you should say, y'all need to watch your mouth. It's Jesus you're talking to. And he knows. Someone touched him. And he knew beforehand. He knew that that poor woman was coming up behind him. And he had already decided he was going to heal that woman. You see, that woman had this misunderstanding of Jesus. She thought there was something mystically powerful about his clothes. If I can just get up behind him and touch the bottom of his robe, I'll be healed. And that's what she does. She gets up, she grabs his robe, and she's healed. Do you know how many other people were probably grabbing on Jesus? It doesn't tell us that Jesus healed them. It, it, she had this idea that his robe, because it was on his body, was kind of had this energy flowing through it, and if she could just touch it like a, like a battery, if I can just touch it, I'll be all right. He doesn't need to know about it. I'm just a little old me. But Jesus stops. Who's touched me? The disciples give their smart response. Jesus isn't deterred. He said he's looking around to see who had done it. He knew who had done it. You see, this woman wanted to be healed on her own terms. 
She wanted to come to Jesus and receive what she wanted the way that she wanted to receive it. She wanted to come to Jesus and utilize what he had in the way that she thought best, but Jesus wouldn't have it that way. He calls her out. Who touched me? And this woman who's ashamed, this woman who knew that she shouldn't have been there, this woman who knew what she had done, she knew, comes forward, it says, with fear and with trembling, and she assumes the position that Jairus had. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I've suffered 12 years. I've suffered much under many doctors. I have no more money. I have no more hope. I'm cut off from all the good. I needed hope. I needed, I needed healing. And Jesus said, well, you're healed. He meets her in that moment. He's compassionate. He says, daughter, you're healed. But he also confronts her. He says, he says to her, what healed you was not my robe. What healed you was not just the tassels of my robe. It doesn't have just this, this mystical power in it. What healed you, daughter, is your faith. You see, her faith was a mixture of belief in the person of Jesus, but also this mystical understanding of he might have some power that can help me without realizing that the power and the person are one thing. You see, Jesus' robes weren't special. Jesus is special. And so he makes her come forward. He makes her, he makes her become uncomfortable. It cost her. This encounter cost her more than she intended to pay. And yet, not only does she receive healing, she receives salvation. He says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Be healed. Jesus deals with her in a way that she was unprepared for and yet gave her far more than she could have imagined. And yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, over to the side is Jairus saying, what are you doing? Why have you stopped? Don't you remember my daughter is about to die? Can you, can you imagine being there, being Jairus, feeling the, the weight of your, of your child's life hanging in the balance? And here's Jesus wanting to know who touched him in a crowd. You see, Jairus' trust only extended to his daughter's being alive. Jesus can only help if she's still alive. Jesus' power has limits. If we don't get there in time, you see, Mark is wanting us to see something in the delay. This was on purpose. Jesus stopped on purpose. Jesus stopped so that the woman would be healed, but also so that his daughter would pass away. Nothing Jesus does is accidental. And what Mark is wanting us to see with these stories unfolding is that the healing of the woman, the healing of the woman who's on the brink of death, who is suffering from a life-taking disease, you know, blood is, the, is, is what gives us life. And this woman is suffering from something that's literally taking her life. She's on the brink of death or under the law, she is literally a walking death. And Mark is showing us that the healing of this woman is anticipating something that's about to happen. He's building this tension. 
If Jesus can handle this, get ready for what's coming. And so while all of this is going on, it says someone came from the ruler's house and says, your, your daughter, Jairus, is already dead. Don't bother him anymore. There's nothing, there's nothing that can be done. Death is the finality of it. Don't bother him. And again, put yourself in Jairus' position. How would you respond? You'd begin to come undone. There would be wailing, anger. How could this happen? If we had only gotten there in time, Jesus, if you hadn't stopped. Now that woman needed help, but if you hadn't wasted that time, perhaps my daughter would still be alive. You see... The people who came also understood Jesus' power to have a limit. Death is the limit. Jesus, overhearing him, says, Do not fear, believe. Do not fear, believe. He's calling Jairus to an intensity of faith that Jairus had no idea about. For Jairus, that was the end. Nothing more to be done. Only emotion and mourning and grief And yet Jesus says, it's not over. Now, he'd never seen death overcome. The cross and the resurrection are still to happen. Resurrection language is not normal. And so for him, he doesn't know how to respond. What do you mean, believe? You see, you and I struggle with this same call. When Jesus says, do not fear only believe. We struggle with it by saying, but my, but my sin is too deep. You don't know what I'm wrapped up in, Jesus. The sickness has advanced too much. The marriage is too dead. The pain is too real. The wound is too deep. We struggle with that same call. Well, Jesus gets there, the the mourners are in place. At this time in history, you would pay people to come and mourn. It's very strange to us, but it was very common back then. You would pay these people to come and wail and mourn. And so that's going on when Jesus arrives. And he says to them, why are you acting this way? She's only asleep. Well, if you knew the, the, the girl was dead, then you would have a problem with that response as well. But because these people weren't attached emotionally, because they were just paid performers, they laughed. And so Jesus sends them outside because there'll be no miracle for people who act like that. Sends them outside. And this is one of the most incredible scenes, I think, in the gospel story. Because in this room is the, 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 the dead daughter of a couple who are freshly grieved And it says that Jesus goes and gets them, the mom and the dad, and they walk into this room together. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're standing in a room with someone who has passed and their loved ones are there. It's a heavy, heavy place to be. And yet Jesus gets the mom and the dad and they walk into this room together along with Peter, James, and John. heavy with death, heavy with grief. And Jesus goes over and sits down on the bed beside her body. 
this dead body, who under the law would make Jesus unclean, and yet it says he touches her. He puts them outside. He he brings in the father and mother. He takes her by the hand. He takes this little girl's body by the hand. Now, I've mentioned to a few of you the child's book, Jesus Storybook Bible. I encourage you to get it. I'm going to quote it here. But I love the way it records it in there. It says, And taking her by the hand, Jesus reached down into death and brought her back to life. I didn't perform some incantation. He didn't do anything special. He spoke. Do you know who's the only person who speaks and creates? God. The heaviness of the room, the grief-stricken parents are looking on, hopeless because she's already dead, and Jesus takes her by the hand and brings her back to life. The disciples had seen him calm the storm. They'd just seen that happen. The disciples had seen him cast out the demons with the word. The disciples had just seen him heal this woman with the issue of death. And now here are Peter, James, and John watching a dead person come to life. And the parents are there. And Mark says, they were utterly astounded. They were overcome with amazement. They were not even prepared for what Jesus was going to do. You see, Jesus can transform a deadly storm into a great calm. He can transform a ferocious brute of a man into a gentle, calm, level-headed man. He can take death and turn it into sleep. And he can take the laughter of scorn and turn it into the laughter of joy. You know why? Because he has the authority over sickness and over death. And so a few closing remarks this morning as we consider what does this mean for us? Well, the main idea, the main point is that we can trust Jesus with our lives. We can trust him with our salvation. You see, Jairus was a man of honor. He was a man of means. He was ritually pure. He held this high religious office. And yet these things provided him no advantage when he came to Jesus. He had had everything the culture and the world could want. And yet they meant nothing when it came to his approach to Jesus. But on the other hand, with the woman, we see that she was impure. She was ceremoniously unclean. She was poor and destitute. And yet those things were no barriers when it came to Jesus. And Mark is highlighting that true faith enables all, whether you're honored or dishonored, clean or unclean. Faith enables all to take hold of the power of Jesus that brings life and healing and salvation. I want to highlight four things about faith just, just quickly. Four things. Number one, faith is challenging. Faith is challenging. For Jairus, his entire life came to a standstill. His daughter was dying, and Jesus says, Wait. He stops and he deals with the woman. And in that moment, Jairus is challenged to his core What are you doing, Jesus? The woman who had suffered in darkness for 12 years, Jesus says, you're not going to hide. Come forward. Be known. 
the disciples were convinced that they understood. Jesus, don't slow down. Everybody's touching you. We got places to be. And yet Jesus was challenging them saying, you think you've got it, but you have not got it at all. So where is God challenging you this morning? Is he challenging you to believe? Perhaps you've never believed. Is he challenging you to believe? Maybe he's challenging you to change. Maybe there's areas in your life where you know, I need to change. I'm out of step with what God says in his word. I need to change. Maybe he's challenging you to trust. Or maybe like this poor woman, he's challenging you to be known in something. You're harboring something. You're trying to keep something hidden. And yet the Bible says there is a, there is a great benefit. There's a great, a great grace in coming forward into the light. Well, the second thing is that faith is costly. It's costly. In both cases, Jairus and the woman, they were both challenged and stretched, but their healing came at a cost. For Jairus, it was the cost of losing his daughter. It was the emotional pain of hearing someone say, your daughter is dead. The strife and the emotion leading up to that, hoping with everything that he is, that that won't happen. And then hearing that, knowing that Jesus paused, that cost him a lot. For the woman, it cost her her anonymity. It cost her 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 safety in hiding. She felt much better in hiding, and yet Jesus said, no, it's going to cost you that. She wanted to be healed, but she wanted it on her terms. She wanted to come to Jesus in a way that was comfortable, and yet Jesus would not allow her to remain hidden. Her belief ultimately was false. Jesus would not let her be trapped in that unbelief. There's nothing special about Jesus' clothes. She had to come to understand that it was Jesus himself. For the disciples, Jesus was dealing with their pride. It cost them their pride. They thought they knew better. They thought they could smart off to Jesus. Everybody touched you, Jesus. And yet Jesus would bring them humility. So a second question is, where is Jesus calling you to pay a cost for your faith? Is he calling you to pay a cost to trust him? Maybe you have to give up some form of comfort to trust him. Maybe you have to give up some kind of fear Maybe you have to give up comfort. Maybe you have to give up pride. Faith is costly. A third thing that we see is that faith is transformative. Faith in Jesus Christ will transform us. For Jairus, he was forced to deal with true belief in the power of Jesus. He thought Jesus could help as long as there's time. And yet through this this whole situation, he comes to understand Jesus works in his own time. And his understanding and his perception of this man, Jesus Christ, totally transformed. Because he thought, what can this teacher do now because she's dead? And yet he saw something incredible and was transformed. The woman who was forced out of her hiding, she must come to Jesus on Jesus' term. You see, in her shame, in her shame, she desired to remain unknown. But Jesus would not have that to be the case. He would have her to be known, and not just known, but healed and transformed and brought back into the life of God's people. 
for the disciples, their transformation came in their focus. They were so focused on what they thought was right, they had no patience, no time for interruptions. We've seen this already. When Jesus leaves the crowds to go pray, they're like, well, hey, 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 this big crowd's back here. We did really good. We should go back. Here again, Jesus is transforming their focus. You're, you're so zeroed in, you can't see the rest. So where is Jesus calling you to transformation? Where is Jesus dealing with you in an area of your life that needs to be transformed by the power of the gospel? Maybe, maybe it's your personal life. Maybe it's sin that you keep harbored inside. Maybe it's <clears throat> your schedule. You see, the disciples experience transformation in their schedule. Nothing, we can't deviate. And yet Jesus would show them he runs on his own time. Well, the last thing I'll highlight is that faith is necessary for the Christian life. Faith is necessary. For Jairus' faith was in Jesus' healing power, but he needed to encounter the true power of Jesus, which is power even over death. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but I imagine Jairus' life was never the same. He thought Jesus could help him on the front end, and it cost him more than he ever anticipated paying, but on the back end, he left utterly astounded. For the woman, her, her faith was misplaced. She thought his robes were special. And yet Jesus says, no, you need to come to know me. The disciples were learning once again to walk with the master. This is yet another example where in the midst of healing other people, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's not, he's not standing, talking to them directly. He's dealing with other people, but they're there. And they're learning to walk with the master. So let me invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. I got two more questions. For the Christians in the room, Christian, are you trusting in the goodness of God and the transforming power of the gospel to change you? Are you trusting in him? Are you seeing his power is not confined to whatever you think it needs to be confined to? His timing may not be on your time schedule. Are you trusting? Are you trusting in his goodness and in his power to transform Perhaps there's areas where you need to deal with and don't delay. Deal with them now. Approach him now. For the non-Christian, if you're here this morning and you are not following Jesus Christ, will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in the one who heals the sick and raises the dead? Will you trust in the one who is not stymied by something that we think is final? Will you see by the power of the Spirit that Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation? God, I pray all of this in your name. I pray that you would use your word in the life of your people this morning. And I pray this in your name. Amen. As we stand to sing, I want to invite you to respond. Maybe that looks like responding in your seat. The altar's open, so if you need to come down and pray, find a brother and sister to pray with. Come to me. 
I'll be down front. Let's stand now and sing.